hopefully you've got your Bibles and your notes ready. So turn to uh, Isaiah 52, if you would be so kind. And let's begin by thinking about miracles in the Bible. So we just watched the storm that stopped, and maybe that's your favorite miracle. Uh, if someone was to ask you, maybe it would be something different. Maybe it would be in the Old Testament, the parting of the Red Sea or the fall of the walls of Jericho or the stories that happen in Jonah or Daniel. In the New Testament, maybe it's that Jesus is born of a virgin, the stopping of the storm or the way that Jesus heals uh, many, many sick people and casts out demons from others. All of us have our favorite miracle. But what would you answer if someone asked you what the most outrageous miracle in the Bible was? I would go to Romans chapter four, verse five, where the Apostle Paul writes these words, that God justifies the ungodly. Now, everybody thinks that God's uh, job description is to punish bad people for the wrong things that they do and to reward good people for the good things that they do. That's generally how people view God. But the Bible and the gospel specifically would disagree with that view. For the gospel says to us that God justifies the ungodly. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that God declares bad and guilty people to be innocent and righteous. That goes beyond miraculous. That goes into the category of scandalous. But it's also very, very good news indeed. For every single one of us is ungodly. Deep down in our hearts, I think we know that as well, that we fail to be the people that we want to be. We fail to do the things that we ought to do. And we've done things that we should not do. And we look for ways to ease our guilty consciences and the burdens that we feel because of those sins. So usually we try and blame shift. We try and put the blame and the guilt on someone else. So parents blame their children, wives blame their husbands, husbands blame everybody else, whether it be their bosses or their kids or their wives or their neighbours or the random person in the street. We blame shift because we don't want to have to deal with the burden of our guilt. And it's a source of great tension in our homes, in our workplaces and even in our churches. We all have something in our past that we regret. Something that we wish we could redo or relive, something that we wish we could erase or cancel or switch so that there would be a better outcome or a different situation. We're all trapped in consequences of sin that perhaps we didn't intend, but we started in motion. And so often we try and medicate ourselves with some kind of placebo antidote of entertainment or romance or overwork, or achievements, anything that will help us to deal with the guilt that we feel. But our problem is not so much the guilty feelings, but the real and objective guilt that is ours before a holy God. In Romans 3, again, the Apostle Paul would write that no one is good, no one seeks after God, and all are held accountable to God for what we've done. But the good news of the Bible is that God justifies the ungodly, really, truly, and fully. 
Now, how? Well, the answer is found in Isaiah 53. And the answer would be summed up in these two words. Great exchange. Isaiah 53, as we said last week, is the pinnacle of perhaps the most amazing revelation in the entire Old Testament of who the Messiah is and his penal, substitutionary, atoning, sacrificial suffering and death for people like you and me. In fact, Isaiah 53 so pointedly describes the cross of Jesus Christ that it reads more like history than it does prophecy. And as we draw again now around this passage and around the cross that it so clearly points to, I pray that we would freshly understand and see the glorious truth of Christ crucified and the great exchange that takes place and that we would come to understand and experience its benefits for our lives, that its transforming power would make us different in tangible and discernible and eternal ways. So I'm going to read from verse 13 of chapter 52 all the way again to the end of chapter 53. This is what God's word says. Behold, my servant shall act wisely and he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. But so shall he sprinkle many nations and kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. And he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that has brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living and stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. 
The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let me just pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray now that you would speak to us, that you would remind us of the truth of the gospel in this passage of Isaiah and change us by your transforming power through the work of your spirit in tangible, discernible and eternal ways. We pray for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, as we said last week, verses four to six really are the heart of this passage. And it's the place where this great exchange can be most clearly seen. And it's an idea that becomes clear as you look at the pronouns that Isaiah uses as he describes the scene. He says, he has borne our griefs. He carried our sorrows. Upon him was the chastisement that has brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. And we, all like sheep, have gone astray, each to his own way. And yet it's the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all onto him. So it's where we get the phrase, in my place condemned he stood. It's that Jesus, the suffering servant that Isaiah foresaw, gets what we deserve so that we might get what he deserves. Everything turns on this amazing substitution. Now, how does Isaiah writing 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ so clearly understand this servant's substitutionary sacrifice so clearly? Well, that's because this idea of substitutionary sacrifice was written into the fabric and the storyline of the Bible from the very beginning. You go back as early as Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve have sinned and they're hiding from God and he comes to them. And he covers their nakedness and their shame by sacrificing animals and making clothes from their skin. Then in Genesis 22, when Abraham takes his long awaited promised son up the mountain to sacrifice him on an altar, God steps in at that moment where Abraham is about to plunge the knife into the into Isaac's body and reveals a lamb who could be sacrificed in his place. Then you get to Exodus 12, where God is preparing to send the angel of death out into the nation of, uh, of Egypt to uh, take the lives of the firstborn in the land. But he promises that for all those Hebrews who sacrifice a lamb and paint the blood on the lintels and the doorposts of their house, he will pass over them because sacrifice has been made. And then through the law and the temple, right through the Old Testament, all of these daily and yearly rituals and sacrifices that the priests conducted and observed, they all pointed to the fact that bloodshed and sacrifice was needed to pay for sins in the place of sinners. So Isaiah understood how deep our sins go, but he also understood that moral reform, trying harder, turning over a new leaf, or a dose of religion cannot deal with our deepest, most serious problem of sin. 
someone has to die for sin. Bloodshed is required to pay for sins. And that's either yours and mine or it's someone else's. And by the Holy Spirit, Isaiah realizes that at the heart of the most important event in human history is an act of self-sacrifice and substitution, a great exchange. And he draws our attention to three elements and three benefits of this great exchange that we see in this passage. The first one is this, that Jesus bore our iniquities so that we might be accounted righteous. This is in verse 11. And the language here is the same language that Moses uses in Leviticus 16 when he describes the day of atonement. Now, the day of atonement back in Leviticus 16 was a special sacrifice that was offered for the whole nation. And on this particular day, the high priest would go into the most special part of the temple, the most holy of holies. It was the only day he could do it. And he would go in representing the entire nation of Israel. And he would go in bearing the bull, uh, the blood of a bull to pay for his own sins. And then he would go in bearing the blood of a goat to pay for the sins of the whole nation. And he would pour out that blood onto the mercy seat that was above the Ark of the Covenant, that symbol that represented the presence of God amongst his people. Then on that same day, the high priest would go out and he would place his hands on the head of a second goat and he would confess all of the sins of the people onto that goat. And then they would send this scapegoat out into the wilderness that it would symbolically be cut off and sent outside of the camp, carrying the people's sins upon its head, bearing their sins away from them, being condemned to death in the wilderness in their place. And in the same way as Isaiah uses the same language, that Jesus bore our iniquities, he's saying that Jesus has come and been both the sacrifice and the scapegoat to carry and bear our sins in our place so that we might be accounted righteous. And in all three of the verses, in verse four, five and six, the servant is presented as the sin bearing substitute whom God has graciously provided for his people to make many be accounted righteous. So verse four, we see that he bore our griefs, that he has lifted up our griefs and taken them upon himself. Then in verse, uh, well, again, in verse four, he's carried our sorrows, that he literally has shouldered all of our sorrows on his own shoulders as if they were his own. Verse five, he was pierced or wounded, fatally wounded, the language conveys. Because of our law breaking and he was crushed, which is a way to describe or surmise uh, being trampled in the dust unto death. For our iniquities, which is a word that means for our acts of evil. And in verse six, God has laid on him the iniquity of us all, but not just sin in general, but your sin and my sin very specifically. You should put your name and your specific sins into that verse. On Christ, God has laid the iniquities, the anger, the lust, the impatience, the pride, the selfishness, the hatred, the greed, the complaining, the bitterness, the gossip, whatever it might be of me and you. And they are transferred to Jesus, our scapegoat, who then carries them away from us 
and pays the sacrifice needed that we might be accounted righteous. In John Bunyan's famous story, The Pilgrim's Progress, uh, the central character, Christian, is on a journey, but he's carrying an immense burden on his back that makes him weep under the weight of it as he struggles because there is nothing that he can do in and of himself to rid himself of his burden. He's incapable of removing that burden from his back and from his soul. So he lives with it, weighing him down day after day after day. But in chapter three, Bunyan writes about a crucial turning point in Christian's life. And this is what he says. Now I saw in my dream that the highway upon which Christian was to travel was fenced on either side with a wall. And that wall was called salvation. So upon this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. And he ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom there stood a grave. And so I saw in my dream that just as Christian came to the cross, his burden loosened from off his shoulders, and fell from off of his back and began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the grave where it fell in. And I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and he said with a merry heart, he hath given my, me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. What weighs on your soul and your conscience this morning? Maybe it's sins from your past. Maybe it's sins that you'd rather forget about, but you can't because they just keep nagging at you, wearing away at your joy and your assurance. Maybe it's things that you did before you were a Christian and came to know the grace of God. Maybe it's things that you've done since you were a Christian, since you have known the grace of God. Maybe it's sins from yesterday. Maybe it's sins from this morning. Maybe it's sins from this pandemic lockdown. But maybe you feel the same as Christian, that there is nothing that you can do that seems to alleviate your regret or your guilt or your shame or the fear that you feel because of those sins. Well, the good news this morning is this. As we look at Isaiah 53, we see the blood of the servant flowing down. And that blood doesn't just pool and puddle at the bottom of the cross. It flows to sinners of all kinds to cleanse us from our guilty consciences and to wash away the stains of those sins forever. Jesus takes our guilt and our shame and our loss and our despair and he gives us in, his, in its place forgiveness and life and new hearts and new hope because he gives us a new righteousness. That is his. And Jesus comes to each and every one of us this morning and he says, don't let the burden of sin sit on your shoulders any moment longer, for I have taken it and I have borne it away. You'll see in your notes a paraphrase from Martin Luther who says this. Here's what you should do when you feel the sins, uh, your sins weighing on your conscience. Don't be afraid. Instead, by faith, take them off yourselves and place them onto Christ. 
For this text, speaking of Isaiah 53, says he has borne our iniquities. It is clear that we need to entrust our sins to Christ. If you think your sins still belong to you, then this thought does not come from God, but from Satan. Because it is contrary to God's word. For in God's word, God places your sins on Christ. So here's what you should say to yourself. I see my sins on Christ. So my sin is no longer my own. It belongs to another. For I see it there on Christ. It is a great thing to be able to say, my sin is not my own anymore. My sins have been transferred to Christ and now they are his responsibility. Jesus has taken our guilt and our shame and he has given us his righteousness. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So God gives us right standing through Christ. All our sin and our guilt is exchanged onto Christ and all that is Christ and his righteousness and his life is exchanged onto us. It is the great exchange where unacceptable people are made acceptable to God, where shameful people are made honourable to God, where foolish people are treated with the royal dignity of Jesus Christ. You'll see in your notes a little illustration from Charles Spurgeon that I love that captures this in great storytelling form. Unfortunately, we don't have time to read it now, but read it in your own time because it captures this idea that Jesus has borne our iniquities so that we might become righteous. The second thing that we see in this passage that Isaiah highlights for us is that Jesus was judged so that we might have peace with God. Jesus was judged so that we might have peace with God. If you look again at verses four and five, the language here indicates very clearly that the servant is bearing and dealing with God's judgment and punishment in his sufferings. He's stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And certainly those first people on that Good Friday in, Je in Jerusalem 2000 years ago would have looked upon Christ crucified and have believed that he was bearing his sin and guilt on that cross for his blasphemy, for the fraud of claiming to be someone that they thought he wasn't. And for his insurrection, he was claiming to be king. And the gospel writers certainly want us to see that this moment in history is an act of divine judgment. That's why the sky goes dark. That's why you get the cries of forsakenness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But all was not what it seemed to be. For Jesus was not being punished for his own crimes, but for yours and mine. You see, Isaiah makes it clear that we are guilty. We're doomed to an eternal punishment of hell unless there is divine intervention. And in this moment, the servant steps in and God pours out his white hot anger and righteous wrath against our sins onto this one intense focal point at the cross. In our place, condemned, he stands or hangs. 
And at that cross, Jesus absorbed all of God's judgment against sin and all of God's punishment for sins. And he did it completely to the max, leaving absolutely nothing for you or I to do or pay later. And he sealed his, our pardon with his blood. And Isaiah tells us that the result of him being pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities is that we have peace with God. Now, when he talks about peace, he's not talking about an inner calm, although that's certainly a fruit of the work of the cross. But he's talking about reconciliation, an end to the war of rebellion and independence of sinners against the holy God. The peace of God is a theme right throughout Isaiah. If you were to flick to chapter nine, you would see a series of pronouncements of woe and judgment on God's enemies. And there's this repeated refrain four times in verse 12, in verse 17, in verse 21 and in verse four of chapter 10, where God says, for all his anger has not turned away and his arm remains outstretched towards us. But then in chapter 12, in verses one and two, Isaiah says, with God speaking, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger has turned away. How? How does that happen? Well, you have to wait till chapter 53 to see the answer that God's anger is turned away from you and me and from God's enemies and poured out on the man of sorrows. The sin bearing, wrath absorbing, suffering servant, Christ. John Stott says divine love satisfied divine justice by divine self-sacrifice. This leaves Tim Chester able to say, so now the justice of God, which was once our greatest threat, becomes our ally. For justice cannot and will not demand a double payment. God will not make us pay what Christ has already paid in full. The justice of God is no longer a threat. In fact, now we can appeal to the justice of God because our sins have been paid for. So we say to our souls the words of the old hymn that we'll sing after this sermon. Now, why this fear and unbelief has not the father put to grief his spotless son for us? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for the dead of sin now cancelled at the cross? So we have peace with God. That means that whatever our circumstances, whatever turmoil or hardship or sufferings that we face, even the coronavirus and the lockdown that we're experiencing right now, we can say we have peace with God. And it's a peace purchased by Christ bearing our sins and the judgment that we deserved. And that peace with God is the foundation for us to experience the peace of God in our lives today. Because of that objective reality of peace with God, we can experience peace, the peace of God that brings comfort and assurance and hope that surpasses understanding. Jesus was judged so that we could have peace with God. Then thirdly and finally and quickly, Jesus was wounded so that we might be healed. 
Again, in verses four to six, the language of being pierced and crushed and punished and wounded indicates that the suffering servant felt the full force, the whole brunt of God's dealings with our sins. And the result, not only peace, but healing. You might say it like this. The great physician who came for the sick undergoes the operation so that the actual patient obtains the healing. Now, verse five, unfortunately, has been hijacked and kidnapped and used and abused by false gospel teachers, prosperity gospel teachers to speak about the instant physical healing and the full health and the best life now that you can experience. But that's not what Isaiah meant when he spoke about healing. It was more comprehensive, more holistic, more glorious than just physical healing in the here and now or health in the here and now. The healing that Isaiah describes is a healing that Jesus will bring that will deal with all of the consequences and effects of the fall. All the physical effects, all the spiritual effects, all the creational effects, all the cosmic effects, both here and forevermore. It speaks of the a healing to all of the damage done, the sin and sickness and death that will one day, one day be fixed and repaired and restored, that all the wrongs will be righted, all the things that are broken will be completely and fully healed. So, yes, I totally agree that God heals today. And yes, I want to pray for people to be healed from the sick today. But this verse gives me more hope than a false gospel preacher. For this verse gives me hope that all my prayers for healing will be heard and answered. Perhaps in this life, but certainly in the next. For we will share in the healing and the resurrection life of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Apostle John would say in Revelation 21 that there is a day coming where God will dwell with men and he shall be our God and we shall be his people. And he will bring an end to all sickness and death and sorrow and tears and crying and pain and mourning and grief. And he will make all things new. So Jesus was wounded so that we might be healed. These are the this is the great exchange. And these are the elements of the great exchange. Jesus takes our sin Jesus takes our judgment. Jesus takes our death so that we might be righteous, so that we might have peace with God, so that we might be healed. If you're watching this and you're not a Christian, the thing that you need to know is that this doesn't happen automatically. It's a truth that needs to be believed by mental assent and understood intellectually, but it's a truth that needs to be believed by faith and received by faith. We must acknowledge the heinousness of our sins and our desperate need of a savior, then we must run from those sins into the welcoming arms of Christ and rely on him and his blood shed in our place to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we must bow our knee to him and confess that he is our Lord and our savior. We come to him who promises that all who are weary and heavy laden can find rest and peace, righteousness 
healing, life and joy. Behold the great exchange. Christ died so that we might have life. Christ bore our sins so that we might be accounted righteous. Christ was forsaken so that we might be accepted. He bore our misery so that we could share in his glory. Because divine hostility was fallen and poured out on him in our place, we have peace with God. And because he was wounded and died, we can have eternal healing and life. This is amazing grace. This is love, vast as the ocean. This is the great exchange. Let us rejoice and be glad. Let us pray together now.